Y'all can take a seat. Good morning and welcome to Neartown Church. My name is Andrew Johnson, uh, one of the pastors here. And I wanted to start off today uh, by kind of both reading and and talking through something. Uh, Karl Barth was a Swiss pastor and a theologian in the early to mid-1900s. And uh, he gave advice to some young theologians, and it was captured in a 1963 uh, Time article. And this is what he said to them. And he said, take your newspaper and take your Bible and read both, but interpret your newspapers from your Bible. As we all know, the newspaper today is rarely full of actual news, and, um, well, it's rarely on paper anymore. And wherever you took in media this week, Twitter, Facebook, online publications, news radio, uh, wherever it came from, it was grim. It was grim. This past week, two uh, black men named Alton Sterling and Philando Castile lost their lives in incidents with police officers. Both were recorded. Both were gut-wrenching to view. And then, just north in Dallas... An angry man took evil action, murdered five officers, and wounded six others, uh, all at a peaceful protest. And the officers ran towards the violence and told the civilians to get to safety so that they could seek out the shooter. Now, I'm not going to act like I know what it is to be a black man in 2016, sometimes fearing for your life while going about your normal day. I've actually talked this week to friends who are legitimately fearful from their past experiences in Houston because of their skin color and their level of fear going forward all because of how their skin looks. Black lives matter. And we as the church need to stand up alongside men and women who are recipients of injustice. Furthermore, I'm not going to act like I know what it is to be an officer of the law in this climate, where the media explodes and solid work that they do as policemen gets questioned. It gets doubted. Their protection simultaneously demanded and rejected, and their characters doubted, and their characters jeopardized, and their lives jeopardized, all because of the clothing that they put on and the jobs that they fill. Sadly, Dallas wasn't even the only place where angry people took to violence against officers because of their misguided anger. Cities throughout the country have had angry individuals shooting police in response to this. We need to stand alongside the men and the women of law and cry out for justice to prevail in their line of work and embrace the righteous actions by good officers of the law. Black lives, blue lives, these are not sides we are talking about. These are all image bearers, all made in God's image to reflect God and imitate him in all of life. The Bible in Romans 12, 18 has called us as people to live peaceably with all men as far as we are able. And it also calls for justice to be demanded where it is absent. I point to, if you want to write this down, Micah 6, 8, Isaiah 58, 6 through 8, 
Isaiah 59, 14 through 16, Jeremiah 22, verse 3, just to name a few. As the church, we must actively denounce the prejudiced and unjust actions against black men and women while simultaneously denouncing evil acts against those in blue that serve and protect our communities. Christians must stand for justice and peace always and cry out when it is out of line no matter where it pops up. I want to take a moment for us as a church to mourn. And pray for those in Baton Rouge, in Minneapolis, in Dallas, in a small town in Missouri, and frankly for our nation at large. We're going to pray for both the justice makers and those who are the recipients of injustice. Would you bow your head with me? Dear Jesus, come quickly. Come and give peace, the peace that we all yearn for. We know that we have peace in you, and yet the world's brokenness reminds us how much more we need you on this earth. Jesus, come and call the communities of Baton Rouge, Minneapolis, Dallas, Houston, our nation at large, to a peaceful and wise response. Let us not repay evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all as you call us to in Romans 12, 17. Lord, protect the men and women who protect these communities and the communities around the nation that have been thrown into a tailspin. Lord, give the officers the climates that they need to continue to do their jobs well. For those, Lord, that reject the image that you have given to all humans, Lord, I ask that you weed them out. Purify their hearts. Allow their existence in places of power to be minimized and their ability to retaliate be squelched. Give us eyes, Jesus. Give us eyes and ears to see and understand how you've made each of us in your image and how we need to see more of you in others that are not like us. Jesus, truthfully, make us more like you. In your holy name we pray, amen. I was a bit of an emotional wreck this week. It was one of peaks and valleys. Uh, The news cycle hit and I was in the valley. And then God, through Ephesians 1, drove me back to the peak of seeing him. And so I kind of wanted to follow that time of prayer with an opportunity to worship through his word. So I invite Debbie, who is going to come up and read Ephesians 1 for us. And I ask that we all stand in response and listen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and all faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Debbie. You all may be seated. I love this passage. I love this passage. Uh, now, here are some things that we might want to know about the Ephesian people in Ephesus as we start this new series walking through the book of Ephesians. Now, the town of Ephesus, uh, we'll have some slides so you guys can kind of see it as well. The town of Ephesus is in the southwestern part of modern-day Turkey. So, uh, it is just south um, there. And over here, you can see Greece. And over there, well, up north, you see Istanbul. And over there is Italy. Uh, so it sits right there. But today, it is no longer known as Ephesus, but is just simply Ephes. It is a seaside town, as you can see. And it is gorgeous and it is beautiful. Uh, Megan and I went there about 10 years ago. And I would encourage anybody who wants to go to Ephesus or any of that surrounding area, go. It's wonderful. Uh, I love it. Uh, now, back in Apostle Paul's time, the Ephesians served the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, and they were strong in witchcraft. We look in Acts uh, chapter 18 and 19 in the story of Paul and uh, his fellow Christians who go there and spread the good news, and these sorcerers and people who are witches say, you know what, we actually believe in the real one true God, and they take all of their sorcery books and they bring them to the middle of the town and they burn them. So we know this is a town where this is kind of commonplace. Paul started the church there. And he lived in Ephesus for years. He knows their mindset very well. And he writes to them from prison in AD 62. Now Paul is writing to a group of Christians that are asking one simple question. 
How do we walk out this life of peace? We just came to Jesus. How do we go about this? What is our next step? Now, uh, one thing is clear, for real, honestly. This was written to the Gentiles. It was a predominantly Gentile environment. And Paul is saying, I know that you come from a pagan background, but I'm writing this to kind of fill in the gaps and allow you to see how you walk out this life in Christ. So over the six chapters of Ephesians, over the next seven weeks here at Neartown, we are going to plod through this. We are going to see what that answer is. How do we live this life of peace that Christ has called us to? Specifically today, I hope, that we're all able to know in a tangible sort of way that we walk out, we can say, I know who God is and I know who I am in light of what he has done. I promise this is a new series, but those covenant questions are entirely foundational and we'll see why. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter one if you haven't already. In Ephesians chapter 1, you have this salutation, simple greeting in verses 1 to 2. Now, let's take a step back, and we are going to look at the structure of verses 3 through 23. Because Paul has written this letter, and it is this multi-layered deal that is just thought upon thought based upon thought based upon thought. Here's how I know. When you look back at the Greek... With the original language that it was penned in. Verses 3 through 6, one sentence. Verses 7 through 10, one sentence. 11 to 12 is a sentence. 13 to 14 is a sentence. 15 to 19, one sentence. 20 to 23, one sentence. So there are 21 verses and there are only six sentences. Of these six sentences that we see, it's broken up really nicely into two sections. The first section is the blessing. That is verses 3 to 14. And the blessing in the Old Testament, uh, you, you see that throughout the Psalms, the Barakah. So Paul writes this blessing, this Barakah, to the people. And then in verses 15 to the close, it's this, this time of thanksgiving for the people and for God. So right out of the gate, in verses 3 to 14, Paul launches into a defense of who God is, what he has done, and who we are in Christ. It's very key. It's who we are in Christ. Now remember, the audience is surrounded by people that claim other divinities. And they see this universe as a concoction of gods that are fighting for control. And Paul wants to be clear. And he wants them to be clear. There is no fight, really. There is one God who is in charge, and it should be certain of who he is and what he has done. So Paul writes this as a defense of the God that they have now turned to. So verse 3 starts off and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every time I have read this passage, it's that phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It jumps out off the page for me. So what does that really mean? Okay, we'll go to that second part, the heavenly places. This is the place that has been affected and changed by God's work on the cross and through his resurrection. So it's the place where God is reigning over. Wherever God reigns, this is the heavenly places. 
Okay, well, what about every spiritual blessing? F.F. Bruce in the New International Commentary series spells out these blessings. And actually, here's the fun part. Paul references that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, but the rest of 3 through 14 tells us what those blessings are. So we don't have to guess. We don't have to sit and say, I don't know. Well, I have a nice house. Maybe that was a spiritual blessing. Uh, No, he's, he's saying it very clearly. This is what it is. So these five things in Christ, one, we have election to holiness. Two, in statement as God's sons and daughters. Three, redemption and forgiveness. Four, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And five, the hope of glory. These five things come to us in the heavenly places. That means if a heavenly place is where God has rule and reign, that means there is nowhere that we will go that his blessings will not impact us. Everywhere that we are, God's blessings are apparent to us in Christ. Now, Bruce pulled out those five specific blessings, and I think it would be wise if we kind of walked through them in 3 through 14. So, starting in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. God has reached through time. It is before creation. He has reached through time and said, this is my people. These are my people that will follow me and they will be holy and blameless. And I am choosing them before creation, not on our account, not by what he has done, by what we have done, but because of who he is and how gracious and generous he is. Our holiness and blamelessness is all under God's character of love. And it is very clear, if God reached through time and picked us to be holy and blameless, his plan has always, always, always been about us being like him, about changing us from the inside out so that our lives reflect and model him. The Bible calls us to be holy as God is holy. There is no accident there. He wants us to be holy like him. And he is going to carry that out in us through the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk more about him in a minute. So uh, jump back into the end of verse 4. You'll see that uh, most of you, if you have a Bible uh, with you, will be the ESV. That's what we have here at this church. At the end of verse 4, there is a period, blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Uh, In the Greek, there is a comma after him in love, and so it could be taken two different ways. Either in love is describing how he has chosen us to be holy and blameless before him, or as the ESV commentators and interpreters have said, in love he predestined us for adoption. I don't really think it's that big of an issue, not one to fight about. You have a real simple suggestion at the bottom that it could be either way, and furthermore, Either God chooses us to be holy in love or he chooses us to be adopted in love. Either way, God's love is the driving factor in his choosing and picking us. It is out of love that he does these things. Now, let's go back in 
The first blessing, again to recap, was God's election for us to be holy, to be like him. The second blessing is what Bruce has called in statement as God's sons or daughters. That's a little older sounding. Let's go with adoption into his family. God has chosen us for adoption into his family. Jesus' work on earth was affected, effective. Jesus' work on earth was effective, and that means we have already been adopted. It is a secure thing. He has chosen us, and he has brought us into his family. We don't have to work for it. It's already been accomplished. Now, some friends of mine were blessed by the opportunity last year to adopt a baby boy. And it was kind of a crazy ordeal. They were on uh, with an adoption agency, and they got a call, and they said, Would you like to adopt a boy? Yeah, sure. Well, good, because you have two hours to come and get him. And they said, uh, Yes, we do. So they left from Flagstaff and drove down to Phoenix and they adopted this boy. And I I called my friend to congratulate him and talk with him about this adoption and hear about the process. And he said something to me that struck me, and it's always struck me deeply, because he was talking about the, the, the feelings that he had knowing the sadness of a mother choosing to give up their child. She chose the day that she gave birth saying, I can't, I can't care for him. And then the excitement of Randall and his family who are going to adopt this child and Randall is going to be a father to this boy. He was so happy. And I asked how he was dealing with the the seesaw of emotions. And he said, well, here's one thing I know. He was in a really bad situation. And we are adopting him out of a bad situation to a really solid one to be raised in love by our family. And he said, that's kind of what adoption always is. Adoption is always going from a very much worse situation to a better one. And we both kind of stopped. And I said, I, I think there's some spiritual implications in what you just said. And he laughed. And he said, yes, because we, we both had this passage in mind. God has adopted us out of a very bad situation, one that we don't want, one that we never wanted. And he has taken us into his house, into his fold as his children. It has been a completed process. We are adopted into the family of God. We're sons and daughters of the king. That kind of goes far. Now, in an earlier version of this sermon, I had a really deep dive into verses 3 through 6, and I pulled us all the way back to Isaiah chapter 44, 1 through 5, where Paul technically laid out verses 3 through 6 to echo a prophecy that Isaiah had talked about and about the coming of the new spirit being proof to the Ephesians that the fact that Jesus had come for them and the fact that they were blessed by the spirit meant that the new covenant had come. Uh, But I cut it out because it was just too long. So just know that it was awesome. And if you want to go back on your own and do some research into Isaiah 44, 1 through 5, you can call me and we can geek out about it. And it was really cool. Uh, But after that section, we go into verse 7. The third thing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins, according to the riches of his grace. It says, in him we have. 
I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but I don't want it to be lost. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness. It is a singular point. It has occurred. We already have it. There is nothing to be worked for or attained. We don't need to worry about losing it. In him, we have redemption and forgiveness. It is secure. It isn't going anywhere. We're free. We're redeemed and forgiven. In this new identity, God continues to work. Now, let's pick up again in verse 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. It struck me as Debbie was reading the beauty of the words that Paul uses. He doesn't just say, God gave us some things. He lavished upon us and gave us in an overwhelming manner. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. When we look at this passage, it isn't just that we receive redemption and forgiveness as if that was the end and that's good enough. No, this is just the opening of the door to how much more through this God is telling us you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven, and now you can see the working out of my plan that I set in motion before creation started, it is coming full force. And because you are in my family, because you are in me, the new covenant has arrived. God is on the scene and nothing will be the same again. God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth under his way. God's goal was to bring into his house, not just you, into his family, but everyone from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, under himself, and lead a people. He is uniting us in him. This is exciting. And, and we are seeing the revelation of this mystery. Humanity didn't know this. Before And through Christ, those of us who are coming to him are having our eyes open for God's greater plan through all of time. This is huge. This is huge. If God is restoring all things to himself, he is uniting all things under him. Why aren't we seeing it? I mean, if, if you are honest and probably have a little bit of internal dialogue going on, you might be calling bull on me. If God has completed the action and he is restoring all things, why aren't we seeing it? Why are innocent men and women in law enforcement dying to protect others? Why do we look back at Martin Luther King Jr.'s writing from 50 years ago and it seems eerily accurate for today as if it weren't written 50 years ago to be applied to a people and at that time why why lord if you are restoring things why aren't we seeing it short answer god's working through you and through me to bring that about he has actually sent us as his people, as his change agents, to bring restoration and reconciliation to the world. 
everyone in this room, and at a later date listening to on a podcast, have been called by God to be his agents of change wherever he has sent us. We get to rewrite the narrative. We get to, inter- we get to encounter others in love and humility. We don't have to keep living this life like everybody expects us to live. Instead, we live a life of change looking towards our king. The long answer, we'll talk about that for the next six weeks as we walk through Ephesians. In Christ, we have been blessed with, one, election to holiness. Two, we have been predestined for adoption. Three, we have redemption and forgiveness. And four, we have been blessed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I touched on the Holy Spirit briefly last week in the sermon, uh, but I can't stop talking about the Spirit because He is so vastly important to who we are and how we live. Now, go to verse 14. Actually, go to verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We've been sealed. We've been sealed. God has placed his mark on us. We are now identified as his. We are sealed. He is not losing us. We are not escaping that wine bottle. We are in him. We're not going anywhere. See, the, the funny thing is... Uh, In Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, Peter, in his very first sermon after Pentecost, reaches back, grabs the quote, and quotes it in Acts chapter 2. And he states, in essence, the Holy Spirit is here. And since the Holy Spirit is here, that is to prove to you all that the new covenant is live. It is here. The Holy Spirit is in action. And everybody can now look back at all those promises and the things that we have hoped for, we as Israel, as he was talking at that time. It's here. It's real. The Spirit is alive and well. And because he is, the new covenant has begun. God has broken in and begun to change all things to himself. Now, there's a second blessing. That fifth blessing is actually rooted. So number five is rooted in the Spirit's involvement. Look in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Because the Spirit has come to us, He opens our eyes to His glory. He opens our eyes to what can be possible in Him. And here's the crazy thing. The wording there uh, in verse 14, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Uh, It can also be translated, who is the down payment of our inheritance? Christ has come And he has given us essentially this down payment of the Holy Spirit. So if life in the Spirit is good, God comes to us and says, this is just the beginning. More is coming. I am going to come and I am going to show you my full glory. If you know the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit, know it's going to get even better. 
It's going to get even better. Now, our hope, it's not stuck in this world. Our hope is for what is to come. But don't hear me wrong and say, let's all forget everything on this world and let's just really get excited about what's to come. Because what is to come is to inform our day-to-day. God comes to us. He works in us. He calls us in light of who he is and what he has done, who he has made us to be, to act in him. And we'll talk more about that, but I can't go into it too much again. We have six more weeks of this, so it's too exciting. Ephesians is a fantastic book. The Ephesians, reading this, chapter 1, at this time, would have been blown away. The gods of their town and the cultic structures never promised to be anything that God was saying he was, and they never promised to do anything that God was promising to do for his people. It was always about trying. It was always about earning. It was always about proving. And Paul lays it out on the table and says, the God you follow is the highest of all. He has created all things and he has blessed you, his people, before time even began. These local gods that your neighbors serve and that you used to serve, they have nothing on him. And he says the same thing to us today. These local gods that entice us, they've got nothing on him. There is not going to be the perfect job, the perfect spouse, the perfect income, the perfect political view that is going to make you feel like you have all things and you don't need God. In fact, it's all competition for him. And God says to us, it's about me. It's still about me. I'm still in charge God is glorious, God is gracious, God is good, and God is great. Who else is going to satisfy us? Where else are we going to turn? It's Him. It's always been about Him. Now, Paul transitions in verse 15 into the thanksgiving. I want to walk us through this. Verse 15, for this reason, because... I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Again, Paul's reminding the Ephesians. I'm not just saying now that you know how to live, go start living it. He's saying you are already in Christ. The spirit is already in you and it is evident because I see your love for the saints. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Well, what does he pray? I mean, that's kind of like, hey, what? what's Paul praying? It's got to be pretty good. Verse 17, what is he praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, God, Paul is praying for God to send his spirit and essentially to have the spirit do his thing, to rip our hearts open, to open our eyes, or rather the believer's eyes, to what God is doing and what is possible through the Spirit. Paul's praying that they catch three important things. What are those? Okay, second half of verse 18. Paul prays for the Ephesians. One, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Two, What are the glory, I'm sorry, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness 
of his power towards those of us who believe according to the working of his great might. That sentence continues on. We'll pick it back up in a second. There are three things that Paul is praying for the Ephesians because he knows something that's very true. When you come to Christ and you hear the good news, there is an immediate excitement and a filling of the Spirit and saying, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to live this life. And then as we go in our Christian faith, we get blinded, we get distracted. Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters to have those blinders moved away, for them to move on for the barricades that they have allowed to be put up, to move on from their old life, and embrace Christ anew. And he prays for those three things. That they know what is the hope to which he's called us. That they know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance for all his kids. And three, that they know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to those of us who have believed. Paul knows this is a process. Paul knows that we need the peace of Christ. And to actually ascertain that peace, we need to remember these critical things. And so Paul encourages them, as I encourage you, know the hope of Christ. Know the inheritance that we have in Him. Know of His greatness. Now to really get a full picture and the full feeling, let's go back to verse 17. Read along with me. That the God, this is the prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, that you may know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one that is to come. Jesus is over all. And then Paul closes this with an encouragement. Verse 22. And he put all things, he, God, put all things under his feet, his, Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as the head of over all things to the church, which is his body. That's us. The fullness of him who fills all in all. To the Ephesians, Paul writes, and to you I say, we are the body of Christ. Christ is our sovereign head. He is the one who fills us. He is the one who guides us. It is the collective we and us, plural language. It is not you as the individual have been saved. Now go do it. You have been called. Christ is about uniting all things under him. And as the head, he fills us in his spirit and guides us as his body to carry out his will. In Christ, we have those five secure blessings. And in Christ, we have been empowered to live the life that is able through the spirit. And so when we leave here, 
We don't have to look at the news and just say, it's all going to hell in a handbasket and we have no ability to impact it. God wants to work through each and every one of us in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and in our friend groups and says, go and love others. Treat them with humility. God has called us as the head of us, the body, to go and imitate him. And he has promised to bring us up, in us rather, the ability to do that. So the question is, do you want in on this? Do you want in on this? Because Christ is calling us to be united in him and go and live his life of peace. Would you all pray with me? Lord, you truly are amazing. You're amazing. You are over all, in all, through all, and you chose to stoop to our level to live a life on this dirty, broken planet and call us to yourself to make a way through your death and resurrection to give us life so that we can know you, so that we can love and be loved. Lord, explore our hearts. What if we haven't come to you yet? Show us what's keeping us from that. Draw us near to your name. Move in our hearts to see you anew. But Lord, if we've already come to you, What does it mean to be united under you? What does it mean to follow you in peace in our life? Open our eyes, Lord, to the life that is free in you. In your name we pray, amen.